Welcome to the Seedfield Podcast, a show where Antiochians share their knowledge, tell their stories, and come together to win victories for humanity. I'm your host, Jasper Nighthawk, and today we are joined by Dr. Gopal Krishnamurti, the scholar of education who's written widely about rewilding learning and bringing the tools of drama into science and math classrooms, among many other things. There are so many directions that I could see a conversation with Gopal going, but for today, we're going to be focusing on how we develop math and science literacy. And I think a starting point for this conversation is going to be focusing in on the difference between memorizing information and learning the skills and passion for exploring and finding things on your own. This might be a false dichotomy, but I want to set it up with a little story that I think will give some give some context for why I'm interested in this question, and also that Gopal and I can talk about more. So when I was in college, I was a student of literature, but I still had to take some math and science courses in order to graduate. So the first course I took was great. It was called Plant Biology. And even though this was a this was a subject that was pretty broad, I found myself just loving it. We went on field trips every month. We would just walk through the forest. We had three different professors. So they would all come with us on these field trips. There were maybe 20 students in the class. And we would just have these wide ranging conversations about the world that we saw around us, making observations. And we also got to use a science lab and design our own experiments. And I remember growing a cucumber plant and making a time-lapse video of it. And my experiment, I was just watching how it did this thing called nicktonasty, which I, I always remember that word, where the leaves would relax at night and then they would kind of perk up and look up at the at the sun during the day. So that was that was like a very positive experience. And then I took this other course that was called Primitive Navigation. And it was all about how for millennia, indigenous people have been moving around our forests and deserts and oceans, often lacking compasses or physical maps, and yet they're able to get exactly where they want to go. And looking back, I can see that calling indigenous people primitive and calling the way they moved around primitive navigation was a little piece of white supremacist language that should have been a warning to me. But I signed up for the class because I thought it was a really interesting subject, and I ended up hating it. It was just 75 students all sitting in this darkened lecture hall watching this one guy up at the front and we the actual assignments that we had were not to go out and to navigate on our own but instead to memorize dozens and dozens of stars and all of their coordinates in that course i really felt like my life force and my brain was just draining away and to me that really signifies like the opposite of learning so to understand the difference between this education that fills you with confidence and curiosity and this education that doesn't, it doesn't even necessarily deserve the, the word education, I have the perfect person, and that is Dr. Gopal Krishnamurti. So Gopal, before I bring you in, let me just say a few words about who you are. So Gopal is the director of the Master of Science in Science Teacher Licensure at Antioch, New England, where he also serves as core faculty in the Department of Environmental Studies and Sustainability. Because we have multiple campuses, Gopal actually lives in Ojai, California, and he also teaches at the Antioch Santa Barbara campus. 
Gopal is himself a longtime teacher whose repertoire includes mathematics, physics, theater, philosophy, geography, environmental studies, and education studies. Among many things he's done, for six years, he was the head of school, which is kind of the same as a principal in America, but he was the head of school for a progressive international school in England. He's also a scholar and has published and spoken widely. So, Gopal, welcome to the Seedfield Podcast. Thank you very much, Jasper. I'm very happy uh, to be here with you. And just picking up on that example that you gave of your own background um, in terms of uh, seeing leaves and seeing them perk up as you used it. I think that itself, uh, for example, your curiosity around that could really inform a kind of science curriculum. Uh, what do you see or what can one see that makes one say that a leaf uh, is perking up? Uh, what can one say about ourselves as human beings? What do we observe to, to say that we've, we've perked up or not? And what are the kind of conditions that will make possible perking up? So that's a sort of just straight from what you said. I think your, uh, you know, your early science experience can actually be a whole curriculum investigative module if it's anchored on that curiosity. And I'd like to use the non-technical term perk up. I, I, I love that uh, orientation. So thanks. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I love that term, Nick Dynasty, but perking up is what is actually happening and what we observe. Yeah, no, I love that, drawing that out. So to start off, before we get back to that question, I want to uh, make sure that people who are listening to this who can't see us, don't necessarily know us, know a little bit about what positions we're coming from. Because this question of how we educate students to enjoy science and math can also end up touching on questions of power in our society. So for myself, I would like listeners to know that I'm a cis man, I'm white, I hold American citizenship, I have steady income and housing, and I'm not currently living with a disability. Uh, Gopal, as much as you're comfortable, what position do you bring this, to this conversation? Thank you, Jasper. Insofar as um, identity is dynamic and carries with it an open question of who am I, which I still hold as a question, I do uh, like to think of this in terms of my current positionality. So I was born in South India, in Chennai. I, it was a cesarean birth. And we've always had a, a joke with my mother when she was alive, saying that right from the beginning, I was sort of uh, headed in the in a rebellious uh, wrong direction or upward direction. So, uh, so I was a cesarean birth, uh, apparently rebellious from the start. And uh, I was in India till I was 18 years old. I've lived, studied, and worked for several years in India, the UK, and the USA. I volunteered and worked in schools where salaries were equal, uh, whether it was head of, uh, head of school, teacher, gardener, etc., irrespective of qualifications, uh, or even more radically in schools that salaries were based on need when we just discuss amongst each other what our needs were, uh, basic needs, and how to take care of those needs. We all had food and accommodation and the same minimum wage, typically. I have now a U.S. citizenship, but because of working in India and the U.K., consequently, I have little or no savings. I'm not eligible for Social Security, at least as yet. I currently have a steady income and in housing. As far as my qualifications, I have an undergraduate in science, a master's in philosophy with a focus on logic and applied ethics, 
and a master's and PhD in education with a focus on cultural perspectives and teacher education. I came from a low middle class background in India and substantially lower middle class background in India, but was lucky to have scholarships throughout my education, including my schooling, so I don't have student debts. So for the moment, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's a dynamic with that question of who am I uh, still as a, a being asked as an open question. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. And also, I like I like the way that you frame it to I think of from Dickens to begin with the beginning, I was born. But I want to stay in your background for just a minute. And I wanted to ask you about your own experience as a, a student of science and math before you became a teacher yourself. But what what were your early experiences studying these subjects? So I think, well, let me go back to even before schooling, I think with regard to science in particular, but also education more broadly, I want to really say that my parents supported my curiosities. Although they were really not well off and we were quite poor and money was a struggle, I think as a family, I think it was uh, uh, less than between 30 and $40 uh, a month uh, for the whole family. So we weren't well off, but in ev very, very small uh, ways, uh, my curiosities were supported by my parents. So I remember we, uh, in my childhood, we were in this apartment and we had around six windows. And uh, I remember even now, I had different bottles and mixtures of sand, water, milk, ink. Some of them reeked. They smelled really badly. But my parents really allowed me to play around and just mess about with stuff. So at home, we had I had this uh, extraordinary support from my parents. And at school, one other aspect was, I'll just draw attention for the moment to a math teacher at school, at high school really, who was very interested in not only mathematics and astronomy and so on. He was actually uh, a coach in these um, math Olympiads. But more interestingly, what was for me the draw was that his passion was very understated. So we have a version of passion as drawing attention to the subject matter and supporting my own curiosities rather than displaying how knowledgeable he was. And that kind of was a very strong for me um, experience in seeding my own childhood curiosities. I wasn't so enamored by people who had this extraordinary display of knowledge of how much knowledge they had uh, they'd garnered and knowledge of facts and so on, but really uh, in very understated ways, drawing attention to the subject matter, to the phenomena that were at hand, that were accessible to all of us and um, allowing that uh, to be the beginning for my own curiosities. And um, yeah. Yeah, well, maybe maybe we could connect that back to the story that I told in the introduction about these two different courses that I took, one where we spent a lot of time in the field, having conversations, making observations, and another where we were really more expected to memorize a sort of ream of knowledge that felt disconnected from anything we might do with ourselves. Does that line up with your own experience as a student of science, but also as a teacher of, a, of sort of two different paths that educators can take? I wouldn't. Um, frame it with that dichotomy. What I would say is, insofar as 
the child or in my case my own experience was being a scientist or uh, being involved in the scientific process in scientific inquiry myself then the knowledge falls into place from that scientific process of investigation it's not so much that there is first the textbook knowledge and that somehow divided or uh, separated from this kind of curiosity that sustains itself. Even in your example, that term, uh, remind me again of the term. Nick-tenacity. Uh, Nick-tenacity. That term comes and falls into place because of the living curiosity and investigation and inquiry that you've engaged with in the field visit with the plant. Then the definition finds its right place. So actually, when I look at a butterfly, the life cycle of a butterfly, and I'm paying attention to uh, actually observing what happens in the various phases in its life cycle, from that understanding and curiosity, when I go to the textbook, the knowledge of the textbook falls into place. It's not so much, uh, is my actual experience of the world fitting with my textbook definition, but more my experience of the world is primary and the textbook definition is just one way of describing that experience, if that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. And I, I like that you challenged the dichotomy between ob observation and knowledge that we might that might have been captured before that we're encountering through a textbook, that the two have an interplay. And so maybe maybe what I'm getting at is more the relationship between the teacher and the student than the relationship between the student and observed knowledge or experimental knowledge and received knowledge or textbook knowledge. I was very interested in one of in one of your syllabi, you reproduced this image of two different two different ways that we could visualize the teacher. And one was the teacher sitting at the top of a ladder and they're they're kind of the bearer of this of this heightened knowledge. And then the students are at different levels progressing up the ladder, ascending towards the teacher's level of knowledge. And even that term level of knowledge is kind of suspect, perhaps. And then you had this other image of a leaf and the teacher was kind of maybe the central vein of the leaf, but the students were arrayed around in these sub veins. Right. OK, so I think that's helpful. That visual, that metaphor is helpful for us in the in the conversation. By the way, that draws on the chapter on living in trees by David Hawkins. And really, he speaks of it in terms of thinking of subject matter as organized, uh, and indeed the world as organized in a ladder-like fashion. So we have to go climb this ladder of knowledge where you have, you can even sort out the student who has learning difficulties or disabilities, if you uh, if you will, as it's called. Then you have the average learner, and the, you have the gifted and talented, uh, and then you have the uh, knowledgeable teacher up at the top end of that hierarchy, and everybody's progressing up on this ladder. In contrast to that, we have a completely different metaphor for for teaching, learning, and even how curriculum and subject matter is organized, and that's the leaf-like or uh, meshwork or network of learning. And I want to also just bring in a, uh, an, an intermediate uh, middle visual that I don't think was there in the, in, the, in the diagram that you've seen. And that is where students are not, say if you have three students, they're not all placed one behind the other, but they're slightly spread out, but it's still behind each other 
in a ranked upward facing hierarchy. And that's, that's the metaphor for what one might call individualized instruction or differentiated instruction. But it still doesn't actually reconfigure profoundly and paradigmatically the relationship between student, teacher, and subject matter. It's still, the ladder is still intact. So the third possibility is not even seeing these students as being sorted into different ability levels and subject matter being batched in this linear way. So I go from addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, long division, fractions, algebra, pre-calculus, calculus, and so on. But to really think about it in terms of this meshwork or this leaf-like network where different students are located on different uh, aspects of the leaf and the subject matter is interconnected with those uh, veins of the leaves. And the teacher, although in the way in which you brought up that metaphor, uh, the teacher is on that central vein, that's not necessary at all. The teacher can move to any kind of, any, any position on the leaf, and it's a dynamic situation. So the teacher can be at the center at some points, the teacher can be at the periphery at, at different points. And so also the students, sometimes the students' learning can be at the center, and the focus for everyone, including the teacher and the other students, and sometimes they can move uh, elsewhere on the leaf. But there's a huge shift in how, uh, and it's a paradigmatic shift, it's just not a small shift, it's a paradigmatic shift in how we see the relationship, uh, educational relations between student, teacher, and subject matter. It's not configured as a linear process of learning along a ladder and a hierarchy, but in this network or meshwork that's uh, captured or reflected by the leaf metaphor. Um, so that's, yeah. I think, yeah, moving away from hierarchy is is a project that requires actually a lot of imagination and that we have to be doing across a lot of our society, but especially in education. Because it, I think when you tell a student, you know, you are behind your reading at a fifth grade level and you're in eighth grade, that's not actually a useful information for anyone and certainly is discouraging to hear even. I want to make it immediate though. So I was hoping that we could bring up an example that you give in this great this great paper of yours that I, I really enjoyed called Taking Mistakes, a Mathematical Tragicomedy, which I love how you combine your passion for theater and drama with love of, of math education. In that, in that paper, you talk about this student who you, you call Tyson. I assume you've changed the student's name, but he, he, gave, he gives like what, what is a wrong, I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, a wrong answer to a, to a question. And you explore different responses that the teacher could have. Could you sort of walk us through these different responses? I'll try that. It's been a while since I wrote the article, so I was just sort of uh, looking it up this morning. But to the extent that I can from my memory, let me try and see if I can uh, summarize it or describe the whole experience. So there was Tyson and the normal analysis of uh, Tyson in terms of his ability would be that he was not even uh, ninth grade level and that his level was below the level of the other students, right? I mean, that would be a kind of normal way in which we sort 
students, both because of our own ways of thinking of teaching, but also because of the way school is structured. The fact that we have grades is taken often for granted, that you have uh, eighth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade. It's not at all obvious that learning has to be sorted in that way. Anyway, so uh, Tyson was in this class, in the math class, and then one of the things with uh, Tyson is he came to this point where he was thinking of four to the power of three, which we'd uh, call four cubed, as three multiplied by three multiplied by three multiplied by three. So three multiplying itself four times. And that is just, uh, it's just a different convention. It turns out that the standard convention, more widely accepted, is four to the power three is four multiplied by four multiplied by four. So four multiplying itself three times. So he was he was misunderstanding the mathematical notation or he was giving like a non-standard interpretation of the mathematical notation. That's right. And he was using a non-standard convention and a non-standard interpretation. So normally the reflex of uh, a teacher and our teacherly reflexes would be to correct that mistake. And also because of Tyson's demeanor, which I described at the beginning of the article, he was a, he was a tall, gangly lad. And so uh, he was rocking about in a seat, slouched back. And at times he would have his head down on the table with his hands covered, seemingly uninterested. So all my teacherly reflexes were to make sure that he was paying attention, on task, correcting his mistakes so that he would really learn. But I had in the back of my mind a sense of let me just pay attention and not let my teacherly reflexes just come into play at this moment. Let me see what his own thinking is. And so in the class, we just uh, what we did was instead of correcting him, even the other students cooperated in this, sort of tried to draw out his thinking. So we, so the other students asked, well, what is, if you say that four to the power three is three multiplying itself four times, then what would you say to four to the power two? So Tyson gets, uh, uh, speaks about it, and then he starts looking at the calculator himself, and he says four to the power two, yes, it's actually... It's the square function is there on the calculator. And he says, yes, yes, yes. Four to the power two is four multiplied by four. So he gets an answer from the standard convention, right? So uh, he says four, uh, four to the power two is four multiplied, multiplying itself twice. So four multiplied by four. And so in a way, it's a kind of success story because we haven't corrected his thinking. We've gone with his own thinking. And then he will see, of course, that four to the uh, three is... Uh, four multiplied by four multiplied by four three times rather than three multiplying itself four times. So it seems all done. We're done with this. It's a success story. And uh, Tyson now knows that the standard convention is four to the two is four multiplied by four and not so not two multiplied by two multiplied by two. Uh, that's two multiplying itself four times. Two multiplied by two multiplied by two multiplied by two. Yeah, uh, but then but then you have this sort of twist where yes. Tyson, the character, actually realizes that in this one instance, two multiplied by two multiplied by two multiplied by two, it's this it's the same as four multiplied by four. So 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 that's the, that 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 twist comes up 
in in quite an extraordinary way. So that twist doesn't. It, so the twist comes up when I am busy demonstrating the success of this story, right? I'm saying we've made we've engaged with Tyson's own thinking without correcting him, and Tyson has himself realized that the right answer is four to the two is four multiplied by four. But in that success story, what I ignored was really that it is merely a matter of convention. And when I said four to the two is different from two to the four, then Tyson himself said, hang on a minute, four to the two is the same as two to the four. So then we, we are on this project, all of us together, the student Tyson, who was supposed to be poor at math or his ability level was supposed to be lower. We're all in this contested space and this project of figuring out why is it that four to the two is the same as two to the four? And is this the case for any other numbers? And we had a kind of inkling, a feeling that this was something to do with the fact that two plus two is the same as two multiplied by two. And I won't give, uh, so I won't say how that resolves itself, but, but it turned out that that did have something to do with the fact that four to the two is two to the four, does have something to do with the fact that two plus two is equal to two times two. Yeah. So to turn from, from the, the mathematical question itself to the kind of higher level question of teaching, I mean, it seems like you as a teacher in that, in that moment had to engage your intelligence and your sympathy, but also like your, your own curiosity and openness to learning or openness to finding something that you didn't expect that you didn't put down in your lesson plan. Right. And that, that kind of seems harder in some ways for, for right. teachers to act like this. <laughs> yeah. Just by what you said, paying attention rather than following a kind of script, uh, things emerged from that class. Questions emerged even mathematical thinking emerged that was really of uh, extraordinary uh, significance, right? It wasn't that Tyson was poor at mathematics. It was that up to that point, I had been poor at recognizing the potential of Tyson's mathematical thinking. So that shift in frame in terms of, uh, as you say, what the teacher is attending to makes a huge difference in what's possible for even a mathematical depth. And I've discovered that it's not just this one instance. I've discovered that actually, if one as a teacher refused to be habitually in a teacherly way, trying to impart one's knowledge and uh, starting with a deficit notion of the student as being uh, or lacking some kind of understanding and knowledge uh, and so on, if the teacher begins to pay attention to the student's own learning, observation, thinking, and questions, then very often, very frequently, we can get into really interesting areas of subject matter that can be very challenging in terms of science and mathematics. We can go to the cutting edge of uh, scientific and mathematical discovery as well. Yeah. And I, I think that that's what I love about this story is that you you ended up actually doing math right. in that in that situation, in that you you were using all of your intellectual faculties and the the class all the students who were there with you to actually try to understand something that you didn't understand and i that that seems like a contrast i mean i i know so many people feel like they're just bad at math and when i press them on it it often comes out that they just 
they, they never were able to actually do math, which is to try to use symbolic reasoning to understand the relationships between numbers and shapes and different things. Instead, they were they were just like struggling to master some equation that was being handed to them and to reproduce the correct answer on a test. So like actually engaging students to do math in that way, it feels very different than the way math is often taught. Yes, and I think that's absolutely crucial, Jasper, the way you've put it. If it's not a matter of guiding people in a linear trajectory, again, going back to the ladder, towards the right answer, everybody is capable of mathematical thinking. When that shift has occurred from teaching to learning in the first place, that the teacher is really to support the student's learning, then a whole universe of possibilities opened up. Yeah, and I, I want to I draw out, like I feel like that is a superior way of, of really understanding the educational process. I love that distinction you draw between fostering learning on the part of students versus just teaching and trying to impart a kind of higher level of knowledge to students. But I feel like there's also a social justice implication here. So how does this, this style of teaching interact with concepts like disability or excellence? So one way of thinking about it is if this ladder-like model and getting to the right answer as quickly as possible is the goal of teaching, then we are going to inevitably sort out uh, students in terms of ability and in terms of achievement. Because if it's going from point A to point B, then some are going to be the high achievers, some average, and some the low achievers. But if we go back to the leaf metaphor, where we're attending to all the interconnected trajectories of learning, then it's not, uh, social justice isn't a matter of providing equal opportunity for the same ends, but rather equal opportunities for the diverse trajectories of learning. And that, that is a huge, uh, that's a paradigmatic difference, I would say. And I'd like to in, anchor what I said before and also what I'm saying now with something from uh, Eleanor Duckworth, who is a, a teacher, colleague, uh, and friend who's written The Having of Wonderful Ideas. But she asks a very interesting question in this, which is, she says, what on earth is teaching if telling someone what you know doesn't help their learning? So that, I think, is a very simple but profound statement because it's not that there is no teaching. It's just the standard approach to teaching is being challenged there. So it's not that uh, in what I described uh, with regard to Tyson and so on, there was a lot of teaching going on, which was attending to Tyson's own learning, asking questions, bringing other students in uh, into the subject matter. And Tyson did some of that teaching for all of us too. So this version of teaching of looking at students' observations, questions, thoughts, and ideas, and moving from that in the subject matter and drawing attention time and again to the subject matter itself is a profoundly different version of teaching. Um, I just say one, one thing which I want to share, it's not so much mine, but I think that really speaks to this different uh, understanding of teaching, but also to your social justice question. And I think it speaks more um, sort of directly to it, uh, perhaps. So this is from a student teacher 
and his, uh, Matt Peister is his name in the Science Teacher Licensure Program. Matt writes, when we were visiting schools and guest teaching lessons as part of the Science License Program at Antioch, I designed the lesson using the principles I had learned with my cohort. I brought in my bug collection to middle schoolers and had them spend the whole class exploring different bugs, following their own questions, engaging in discussion, and generally messing about. Students were sharing what they noticed about their bugs, the similarities they saw, and making educated guesses about questions they had. They became more comfortable with being around insects and touched on topics like metamorphosis without me ever saying the words or, quotes teaching them anything. At the end of the day, the teacher for those classes came up to me. She shared that she was overjoyed because several students who didn't normally participate had been actively engaged in their own learning the whole time. She was especially excited about two students who normally very rarely participate in her class, one of whom was a young black student who had, quotes, diverse learning needs, and the other young girl. On this day, they had both, quotes, fit into a scientific space, breaking down learning barriers, societal barriers, social barriers, and personal barriers to become, in that moment, scientists. I believe my learning at Antioch played a large role in what happened by making the focus of education the students' own ideas and noticings and interests and questions, rather than the teacher's ideas. It gives power to the students regardless of gender, race, or IEP status in a society and school system where power is often being taken away. So I just wanted to share that with you because I think it talks, it speaks to this uh, aspect of social justice, but also the relationship between student, teacher, subject matter, that's yeah. profoundly different. It's not just a small shift. It's a profound difference in the teachers attending to the students, uh, noticing questions, ideas, etc. Yeah, thank you. Well, we are almost out of time, but I, I want to close by pulling out even a little bit further from the, the specifics of how this, this type of learning can be fostered and to talk about the whole project of public education in the U.S., which, of course, the father of American public education, Horace Mann, was the first president of Antioch. This is a, a subject that's near and dear to our heart here on the podcast as well. And I really I ran into this quote from you that I loved, which you write, while our education policies, schools, and habits of teaching continue to be driven by political agendas and ideologies, today, despite the best efforts of our teachers, learning is critically endangered, its spirit tamed and tethered, its habitat shrunk, its resources depleted, and its movement circumscribed. So there's there's a lot there. Um, and we were actually talking about some of the ways that that education and learning are under attack in legislative legislation that's being passed around the country. But I wanted to ask you the question, both what signs of hope do you see? And what can we as not just teachers, but also as parents or community members and as students ourselves, what can we do to protect learning and to restore its deep power? So I think for the moment I'm seeing it, it's a huge question and I don't pretend to have any answers for it. But for the moment, I see the challenge I see us addressing it, a possibility of addressing it from uh, two perspectives or two angles of regard. So one is the social, political, institutional perspective and angle to actually really become informed, to push back against legislation, to vote for different people, 
to create awareness and knowledge about some of these challenges that are occurring, to be informed about uh, your uh, school district, who are the people involved, the superintendent. Uh, so all that has to happen. The other is, I think, to really push back uh, from the ground level, as it were, is to really make sure that these diverse trajectories of learning can be supported. So, uh, and to have and create and sustain a paradigmatically different approach to teaching and learning and curriculum design that will push back against this version of the teacher being the one uh, who's the authority or the, or the state mandated syllabus and curriculum being the authority to which the student conforms. So it becomes a protracted exercise in conformity really. Uh, but I think what I want to really communicate is the time to make small changes is over. We have to have paradigmatic changes in education, the aims of education, in curriculum building, in teaching and learning, where we get off our pedestals and really begin to learn with children. Uh, so children as educators, there's hope in children as educators if there is hope in anything, so. That's so beautifully put and a wonderful note to leave it on. Thank you so much, Gopal, for coming in. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Jasper, thanks so much. Likewise, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. Gopal teaches in the education programs at Antioch, New England and Antioch, Santa Barbara and he's the director of the Master of Science in Science Teacher Licensure. We will link to more information about these programs in our show notes. We'll also link there to Gopal's article, Taking Mistakes, A Mathematical Tragicomedy. We post these show notes on our website, theseedfield.org, where you'll also find full episode transcripts, prior episodes, and more. The Seedfield podcast is produced by Antioch University. I'm your host, Jasper Nighthawk. Our editor is Lauren Instanis. A special thanks to Karen Hamilton and Melinda Garland. Thank you for spending your time with us today. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you next time. And don't forget to plant a seed, sow a cause, and win a victory for humanity. From Antioch University, this has been the Seedfield Podcast. Podcast.